So we'll be looking at several portions of Scripture this morning instead of our usual study in the Gospel record of Matthew, although we will be in Matthew. We're not in the same place that we've been over the last several weeks. That portion of Scripture that we've been involved in studying over the last several weeks has focused on the last days of Christ's ministry and the promise of His coming. But that will be still yet in our future. That is what we call His second coming. And there's much to learn and to discuss with regard to those events. But today we're going to look at, well, His first coming, as it were. And yes, it is His first coming in the sense only that He came in a form of a man, in the likeness of man. He was born into this world and took upon His holy self human flesh. Remarkable. Can't understand it all, but I see that in the Word of God there is ample, ample proof of all of these events. But today we're going to be looking at um, a couple of things, as I said, that lead up to and also follow after his birth that I find to be rather interesting to me, and I hope it is to you all. And that has to do with the fact that God, in his sovereignty, chose to give men some assistance. Throughout the Word of God, we see many, many different places where there is activity upon this earth in this physical realm with, within which we are all part of, an entrance into that realm by those who don't normally reside under these conditions that we live in in this environment, this physical space-time continuum. They're known to all of us as angelic beings. There are many that are mentioned in the Bible. Some, two of them are named. Three of them, I guess, if you want to include the name Lucifer, which some theologians believe is not actually his name, but I'll take it that it applies to him as a name for this one was a fallen angel. But all the other angels that followed him also were at one time together in the heavenlies and they all of them had seen God create the heavens and the earth. We're told in the Old Testament that they sang, and that's the only place in the Word of God where we're given any indication that the angels sang. Praise to God. And they were just amazed at the creative power of God. But again, some of them fell, led by this one who we are naming Lucifer, and the Bible does give us that name in the Old Testament Scriptures. He's known to us as Satan, that serpent, the dragon, by many, many different appropriate names. But there are two others that are named also in the Scriptures. One of them is Gabriel. And Gabriel tells us, as we will read, that he stands in the presence of God. That's a pretty important place. Place of authority that apparently is given to a class of angels known as the cherubim. So it is likely that Gabriel was a cherub 
The other named angel is Michael. Michael is the prince of the people of Israel. He's the angel that God has selected exclusively to protect his own people, the nation of Israel. And we find out in Daniel's record, for instance, that Michael will come in the last days because of the need for his people to be protected. And Michael will indeed be involved in that process. He is known as the archangel. And as far as we can tell, he is the archangel, and there are no other archangels beside him. There may be, but we're told that he is the archangel of God, a very highly exalted angel. Satan, by the way, was also a very highly exalted angel. He was their, well, you you might call him the choir leader of the angelic hosts. We're told that he was well-adorned and sang before the Lord until he fell. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are many occasions where angelic beings come at the bequest of God to assist, to instruct, to warn mankind of certain things. There's also reference to the angel of the Lord, which is a unique reference, by the way, and most theologians believe wherever you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, rather than an angelic being, this particular personage appears to manifest for himself deity, authority that only belongs, characteristics that only belong to God. And so, most conservative theologians and pastors and teachers who share the same understanding as I do believe this to be the pre-incarnate Christ. We call it a Christophany or a theophany, an appearance of Christ in his pre-incarnate state. Those appearances happened fairly frequently in the Old Testament of both the Lord of the, uh, the angel of the Lord and also other angelic beings coming in the presence of mankind. Abraham was one of those with whom the Lord spent a good deal of time. The Lord spoke to Abraham often in visions and also appeared to Abraham in some human form along with two of his angels just before the city of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And we find in the context that that particular encounter is given, that Abraham was in his tent, and he looks out and sees these three standing before him. And he recognizes that these three are not just the normal visitors. And he worships. And he offers them a meal, and they accept it. The Lord is the leader of that threesome, and his two angels with him are the ones that he sends to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. I find it most interesting that Abraham almost, though reverently, his response to the presence of those angelic beings and the Lord himself doesn't seem to be all that much of a difficulty for him. 
Whereas in other places, almost every other occurrence of that kind of encounter, it is experienced by those who see these things by dropping to their faces in fear, overwhelmed by the presence of this angelic being who is obviously much more powerful and majestic than anything that they have ever seen before. You go through all of the Old Testament scriptures and you'll see that's the reaction that pretty much every one of the other encounters, those who have had that experience, became so very fearful, overwhelmed. Daniel was one of those. He fell to his face trembling. He, couldn't, he didn't have strength to stand in the presence of such power and beauty and, and majesty. And over again, in all of those other places, there were many appearances. That seems to be the response of humankind to the presence of such a holy being. But if you go through all of the Old Testament scriptures and see all of those accounts, take note of the fact that they didn't happen very frequently. Those events were widespread throughout the history of the Jewish people over much time. One incident took place, and then perhaps several hundred years later, another incident is recorded. However, in the New Testament, we find many examples of this angelic presence at the time of Christ's birth. A multitude of angels are involved. Think about this. God presented himself throughout the ages from time to time, not very often, but on this particular occasion, this event that was unfolding before the eyes of mankind, angel, angelic hosts were all over the place. And I submit to you that we'll find some commonality in each one of those appearances. And we're going to look at each one of those uh, today, beginning with the first one found in Luke's Gospel. So if you'll turn to Luke chapter 1. The first angelic account in the New Testament Scripture is found here in Luke chapter 1. And it's actually a precursor to the birth of Christ. But it's a very important encounter. It's setting the stage for something of great, great importance that will take place much later in the lives of those here involved. The setting of this encounter is in Jerusalem, at the temple, the Levitical priests had responsibilities to set up things in the temple on a regular basis, a daily basis. They had to do certain responsibilities that they shared among the Levitical tribe. The tribe of Levi was one of 12 tribes of Israel, and they were the ones that were given the responsibility of maintaining the temple and doing all of the various temple services. By the time of Jesus' birth, 
There were some 20,000 Levites in Israel that were available to serve in the temple. But they all couldn't serve at the same time, obviously. And even in David's time, several hundred years prior to this, David realized that the numbers of Levites were so great that he designed a means by which they could share the responsibilities by rotating through what were called courses of Levitical priests. So they divided the numbers of Levites into 12 courses, or 20 courses I think it is perhaps, but in any case, this particular account that is given in Luke is an account given with regard to one individual who was a Levite who was part of the course of Abijah the eighth out of the number of courses that were available. And in that one group of Abijah's course, however many Levites might have been involved, they each were given responsibilities by casting lots for the various difficult tasks or not so difficult tasks. As the lot was given to each one, that was the task that they would perform. This story in Luke's Gospel tells us that there is one individual whose name was Zacharias. And he was a righteous man, and his wife, Elizabeth, was also righteous before the Lord. And it was given to Zacharias by casting of lots the responsibility of lighting the incense on the altar of incense in the holy place. What a great privilege this is for any one of the Levites And although some might call this coincidence, there is no such thing in God's economy. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew language, there's no word for coincidence. God chose it. God directed the choosing of Zacharias by lot to be the one, and this could possibly have been the only time ever that he had been chosen. He's Stricken in age, it tells us. So he's been in service to the king over all these years, and it appears to be this must be perhaps the first time that he was selected. In fact, many of the Levites never did get selected for this high, exalted opportunity to go into the holy place and light the table of incense, which is prayers of the people going to the Lord. If you're familiar with the setup within the temple... You walk into the temple grounds, and it's an outer court. And then you go into the inner court where the altar is, where they sacrifice the animals. And then you go into the actual temple itself, and that is what is known as the holy place. And in the holy place, on one side, is the table of showbread. On the other side is a candelabra that is lit by the priests. And just before the opening of the most holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant is and in that room only a high priest can go but in front of that stood this table of incense. So this is as close as any Levite could ever get to the presence of God in that holy place. Only the high priest could go beyond that curtain into the Holy of Holies and only once a year. So this was a very, very high honor for this man or any Levite to have that 
privilege of lighting the table of incense on this special time of prayer. So Zechariah was chosen. And again, it's important for us to understand the significance of this man and his wife. The word Zechariah in the Hebrew has a meaning. It means God remembers. The word Elizabeth also has meaning in the Hebrew language. And that word Elizabeth is a reference to the oath of God. So you put the two names together and it implies a message. Subliminal, yes. But it's there in the word of God. God remembers his oath or his covenant. Well, what's that all about? Well, I'd like you to first, before we actually read anything from that passage in Luke's gospel account of this, turn with me to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a contemplation by Ethan the Ezraite. And it is a psalm regarding David, primarily, and the promise that God made to David, as it's recorded here in this wonderful passage. It says in verse 3 of this psalm, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your thrones, your throne to all generations. In verse 19 it says, Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to one who was mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David with my holy oil. I have anointed him. So God has a special purpose in raising up this young lad from Bethlehem, a sheep herder, the youngest of his brothers, anointed by Samuel the prophet, and promised a very, very significant covenantal promise by God to him. He says in verse 34 of the same Psalm 89, repeating again the word covenant, he says, My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever, like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. A covenant made by God, and it is one of those covenants that doesn't require anything on the part of the man with whom the covenant is made. It's known then as an unconditional covenant. And the covenant, again, that God made with David is that one of David's descendants would sit on David's throne forever. Now, many of you who have read through the Old Testament Scriptures are well aware of the fact that in First and Second Kings, we have the record of all of the men who reigned in Jerusalem as descendants of David, direct descendants of David. Some were good kings, but most were not. 
Psalm 89 addressed that also. If they sin, he says that they would be punished. But there's coming one who will fulfill that promise, that covenant. It will not be broken. Well, if you look through the Old Testament Scriptures, you find that during the Babylonian captivity, Jehoiachin was the last of the kings of the Davidic line. And he was cut off from being able to pass on his kingship to the next generation because he was taken into captivity. Jeremiah tells us that that's the end of that particular line of kings. And it looked like that's the end of the covenant promise that God had made to David. If the line of kings has ended and Jeremiah says that God has cut them off, then what are they going to do? How is that fulfilled? And it was a mystery. And that mystery was revealed in the New Testament. You look through the New Testament records, Luke and Matthew, both of them give an account. Luke and Matthew give the genealogies, two different genealogies. One gives you a genealogy through Solomon, the kingly line. That came to an end. That's in Matthew's Gospel. But Luke tells us of another genealogy. Now, Matthew's genealogy is a genealogy of Joseph. The genealogy in Luke is a genealogy of Mary through a different son of David. Why is that significant? Because Joseph was married to Mary, but Joseph was not the father of Jesus. Jesus received through Mary the blood right to the throne, a descendant of David, as the Scripture pointed out. Joseph's part was only in the sense of passing on the legal right to the throne. Although he was not a blood descendant of Joseph, he was still given the blessing from Joseph, the inheritance that was from Joseph to himself as that one that could then sit on David's throne legally. So both genealogies give us the requirement of that mystery that was presented when the line of David was cut off. Now we know that Jesus does have the legal right and the blood privilege of entering onto that throne And he did indeed fulfill all of that which was necessary. So these things that are going to be taking place are orchestrated by the Lord, and he wanted to make absolutely sure that everything was done as it had been said. Make no mistake, God wasn't going to allow mankind to mess this one up. So he sent angels. He sent angels to direct the affairs of men. And if you think that God isn't still in control, then all you need to do is take another look at what He did then. And we know that He's going to be involved in the last days as much as He was in the first coming of our Lord. 
Perhaps we'll see some of that a little later on. But let's look together at Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is serving again in the holy place. And it tells us in verse... Oh, let's start with verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw it, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Take note of that. It wasn't, oh, hi, glad to meet you. What's your name? No, it was a surprise to him. Of course, he's in a all by himself in a very, very sacred place. And all of a sudden, this personage stands before him at the right side of the table of incense in great majesty. I don't know what it would be like to have such a thing happen. But my guess for all of us would be exactly the way it was with Zacharias. Fear came upon him. But that's also something of great significance, I think, as well. Because the angel, who identifies himself here, says something at the very beginning of this encounter. When Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. And then verse 13 says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Underline that. Do not be afraid. Boy, that's a relief. I'm not really sure if that helped him. I don't know if it would have helped me. I still probably would have been shaking in my boots. I'm not sure about you, but I'm not really likely to be able to stand, I don't believe, in the presence of a holy angel and say, Oh, boy, I'm glad you said that. Now I feel better. In fact, in some cases, when the angel actually in the Old Testament conveyed that idea of not being fearful, the angel had to pick the guy up off the floor, and in one case, he put burning coals upon that man's lips so that he could speak for God. It appears that most appearances, encounters of angelic peoples, angels, cherubims, seraphims, whatever, most encounters cause the individual to be changed forever. Don't be fearful. Your prayer is heard, the angel continues to say. What prayer? Well, nobody's sure. We're not told what he was praying then or had been praying for so many years. The implication in the way that the original language is written seems to be that the prayers that he had been praying for many, many years. He's an older man. His wife is also an older woman. Together they have been without child. All of these years, for a Hebrew woman married and without children, it was a disgrace. She was humiliated by those who knew her. Ridiculed, perhaps. Life was hard for her and for Zacharias. But the angel said, your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Oh, now wait a minute. That's impossible. It is impossible. 
Listen, you shall call his name John. You know what John's name means? Gift of God. God's answering your prayers, Zacharias. He's giving you a gift. You are to name him John. And then he goes on to say, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. That's significant. We'll see that in a moment. But the angel goes on to talk about this one whose name will be John. And if you are familiar with the Word of God, then you know that this is John the Baptist. It's a pronouncement of John the Baptist's birth. And why is that important for us in this Advent season to look at this particular event? Because it's a prelude to that which is to follow with much greater importance. But don't lessen the importance of this event. We're seeing a miracle being manifest in the lives of two faithful people of God. A man and a woman who have been wanting a child. Now are promised a child will come from him and her together and it will be a miracle of life because she will have been barren for so many years and she's beyond childbearing age. Very much like Abraham and Sarah. But with God all things are possible. And the angel has given this promise to this man. And it's interesting, though, that Zacharias, because of his age, didn't believe it. That's impossible. How can this be? And his question was obviously a question of doubt. Because the angel's response is, Listen, bud, I'm Gabriel. I stand before the Holy God. Don't you think that I would tell you something like this and it would have to be so? Well, he didn't quite say it that way, but he did say, I am Gabriel. I am Gabriel. And this is the truth. You will do and experience all that you have been hearing me speak of. And because you doubted, he tells Zechariah, you're not going to be able to speak until these events are completely unfolded. And so he became speechless. Literally, he couldn't speak. All the time during her pregnancy, from that point on until she conceived and bore the son that was promised. When he was born, at the time of John's circumcision, then his mouth was opened in fulfillment of all that the angel had told him. It's a remarkable story. John the Baptist needed to be born, and he needed to be born to Elizabeth and Zacharias. He was to be the fulfillment of the promise in Malachi, which said that there would be one who would come before the Messiah, who would proclaim the arrival of this one who would be the king of Israel, promised to David in that Davidic covenant. John is the fulfillment of several Old Testament prophecies regarding the advent of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
This record is the only record found in the New Testament where we see the significance and the importance of this birth is so great that God made sure that it would come to pass exactly as He intended for this thing to take place. Again, left up to us, we'd probably mess it up. We need help. I believe, by the way, that we all of us have some kind of help from time to time by spiritual forces we cannot see. Do you know the Bible tells us that there are opportunities that we may have been given throughout our Christian lives where we have perhaps entertained angels unaware? If that's the case, then sometimes, if you think about it, you might be able to look back and say, oh, you know what? Maybe that was an angel after all. I had no other explanation for it, but it happened in a way that completely overwhelmed me. If that's ever happened to you, then perhaps it was. I know in my own life, I've never actually seen an angelic being. I don't know if anybody here? No, I didn't think so. Does that discount the presence of angels in our lives? No. Jesus talked about the fact that little ones, children, they have their angels watching over them. And so it's given that many people believe, and I think that's not a bad way of of looking at things from a perspective of you and I as followers of Jesus Christ, protected by the Lord, perhaps do still have somebody watching over us. Well, what's his name? I don't think it was Gabriel. Uh, He's probably more likely going to be used by God for something major. (laughs) But who is my guardian angel, if I've got one? But you might find out when you're standing in the presence of the Lord and you see this angelic being come up to you and say, Hey, Bob, remember that time? I was there. Well, you would have messed it up really royally if I hadn't helped you out on that one. I wonder how many of us are going to hear such things as this. But Gabriel had another visitation in mind. He was used a second time by the Lord to bring another message. And it happened about five months later. Gabriel was sent instead of the city of Jerusalem to a small, insignificant little town known as Nazareth in the foothills of the Sea of Galilee region. And it tells us in verse 26 of Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, Now in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. 
for you have found favor with God. Notice the angel is saying, Calm down, Mary. Don't be fearful. Just like he did with Zacharias, her reaction to the presence of this holy angel was exactly the same. She was troubled and with great fear in the presence of such a one as this. And he instantly responded by saying, Don't fear. It's okay. I'm not going to hurt you. I've got a message for you. Notice also he says, Most highly favored one. She was highly favored of God. Well, of course, if you're familiar with Catholic theology, you'd be familiar with the worship of Mary. And the Catholic Church has for many years developed over this period of time this doctrine, Mariology. And I find it to be a most unfortunate, unfortunate doctrine because it is not biblical. It doesn't say that she is to be above other women, but she is favored among women, most blessed. And yes, it was. So the Protestant churches need to understand that Mary does have a place of great honor among all believers, but she was in need of a Savior, just like the rest of us are in need of a Savior. In fact, what we know as Mary's beautiful response to the message that Gabriel has given her, the, the, the beautiful, uh, eloquent praise to God. She refers to God as her Savior. She's in the upper room with the other 119 souls that were waiting for the, for the promise that Christ had promised that the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And she, like the rest, were filled with the Holy Spirit and she was given the salvation that she had sought after and she served the Lord all of her days as a believer under the care of John the Apostle until she died. But there's no record at all anywhere in the early church or in the writings of the New Testament Scriptures or in the promises of the Old Testament Scriptures that she would be assumed into heaven and also become a co-regent with Christ. That is Catholic heresy. It's wrong doctrine. And it's not biblical. However, please don't lessen the importance of this wonderful woman who was known as the mother of Jesus. Not the mother of God, the mother of Jesus. She was given the special privilege of bearing in her womb this one who was known as the Holy One of Israel, who would be born from her willingness to submit to the plan of God as given to her by this angel. What a special privilege. What an honor. What a great, great woman of God she must have been. Highly favored one. You know there's only one other person, as far as I know, that was mentioned in the Word of God that was a highly favored individual. That would be Daniel. He was highly favored also. In much the same way, the angels had come to him on more than one occasion. And he was told that by one of the angels, and I believe it was Gabriel, by the way, oh, wait a minute, if Gabriel appeared to Daniel around 560 or so B.C., and now he's appeared to Zacharias, and again he's appearing to Mary around 2 B.C., perhaps, 
That makes him over 550 years old. How can that be? Do you think that any of the spiritual realm is bound by space and time? I don't. So I don't think it incredible that the angels who were in existence at the creation are still in existence today or in Jesus' time. But then Gabriel came and he spoke these words to Mary. He says in verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and he shall, and you shall call his name Jesus. Oh, the name Jesus. Yeshua in the Hebrew. Jesus in the Greek. Jehovah is salvation. Yahashua is another way of pronouncing this great name. God has brought forth His salvation through this wonderful birth, miraculous birth. Take note again. Zacharias and Elizabeth came together under normal relationships to bring about that which was born to them. He is the father of John. She is the mother of John. Joseph was never counted to be the father of Jesus. Luke and Matthew are both very careful to make sure that you understand that Joseph had nothing to do with this birth. It was a miraculous birth. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you shall give birth. You will conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. The virgin birth. Promised by Isaiah in chapter 7 of that great Old Testament book. Behold, a virgin shall give birth. In chapter 9 of that great book of Isaiah, God tells us through Isaiah, Behold, a son is born. A child is born, rather, and a son is given. Son of God is given to the world. A child is born through a willing servant whose name is Mary. The angel came and spoke these wonderful words to this woman. And in verse 34, her response, Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man? Well, you might think that this is the same kind of question that Zacharias asked. How can it happen? His question was a question of doubt. Her question was a question of How can it be possible? It wasn't doubt. She wanted to know, tell me how this is going to work out. Tell me how you are going to be able to demonstrate to me that this is even going to be a possibility. It's not that she doubted. She wanted to know what procedure is involved. I've never known a man. He answers her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, it says in verse 35. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Not the Son of Joseph. The Son of God. As plain as plain can be. Mary was the mother of Jesus. 
God was the father of Jesus. Joseph was simply a man chosen by God to care for that one as his earthly dad. To love him, to train him up in the way that he should live. And so Joseph did all that he could to accommodate that. However, Joseph, when he first heard of this, obviously you know the story, he wasn't very happy about it. I believe Joseph loved Mary. They had been engaged. That means an espousal had taken place, an arrangement that had been already confirmed and ratified by a document, a binding document, like our marriage contracts would be. And yet he finds out this woman that he was espoused to is pregnant. Under Jewish law, if such a thing were to take place, the woman would be likely stoned to death. That was the prescribed method of punishment for a woman that had disgraced her espoused husband in such a way as this. But Matthew tells us Joseph couldn't do that. But he was so very, very troubled. He didn't know what to do. Matthew records for us another angelic encounter. It was necessary. Because without this, Joseph would have just not been able to put things together in a way that would bring about that which needed to pass. But with the angel's help, God fulfilled the promise that he had made to Mary. To let Joseph know also that with God all things are possible. Christ was born. But before he was born, this event had taken place and Joseph was torn by all of these things. It says in verse 18 in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Notice that Matthew does not say anything differently than what Luke has already said regarding this miraculous birth. Then Joseph, her husband, verse 19 says, Being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. He didn't want her to have to go through the terrible judgment that was to come upon an adulterous woman in such an occasion as this. So he wanted to find a way, perhaps, to just make sure that she's not made known among the neighbors. Perhaps send her far away. Perhaps this might be the reason why she went to visit Elizabeth. Oh, you remember her? Yeah, she's involved in this particular part of the story as well. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, decided, I've got to do something. I don't know what it is. But he couldn't figure out exactly how to handle it. He was so deeply troubled over this. And then in verse 20, we see the move of God in this man's wonderful experience that he has beholding an angel also. He says in verse 20, But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take you to you, marry your wife, 
For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Joseph now has been given by another angel. We're not told, by the way, if this was Gabriel or not. It may have been, but it's an angel that visited him in a dream. In the other two occasions, both of the recipients of these newsworthy stories that they had received were given this account by the angels, apparently, while they were awake. But Joseph was asleep in a dream, and this dream came to him, and the angel spoke and gave him these precious words of promise. It's okay, Joseph, take her as your wife. You see, they were engaged, espoused, but they hadn't actually consummated that wedding by celebrating the marriage and then consummating the marriage by coming together as man and wife. Joseph heard from the angel. And he did not know her, it tells us, verse 25, until she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he did call his name Jesus. Remarkable man. He withheld, withheld his privilege of consummating the wedding with sexual intercourse with his wife until the baby was born. The implication, by the way, is that they did come together after Jesus was born, which again negates the idea that Mary had no other children, that there were no other offspring of Mary and Joseph. They were. They were named in the Scriptures, Joseph, James, sisters, and Simon, perhaps as many as five or more siblings, all of them half-siblings. They all were sons and daughters of Joseph as well as Mary but not Jesus. Go back to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Mary and Joseph were told they needed to go down to the city of Bethlehem because Joseph was a descendant of David and at that particular time the Roman government required that a census be taken. What a coincidence! Oh, I forgot. There are no coincidences with God. He arranged it. He made it so that the Roman government insisted upon a census that would force Joseph to leave his town of Nazareth and come down to the little town of Bethlehem because that's where the Scripture said the Messiah would be born. It all fit. It was all arranged by God and he made sure that everything fell into place, even using Gentile rulers and ungodly men to put together that which was required to force Joseph and Mary to come down to Bethlehem at the right time so that she could give birth in the right place. And it's also noteworthy that in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 2, verse 8, that we find that there were shepherds in that region outside the city of Bethlehem. 
It tells us there, now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were happy. They were greatly afraid. Notice the consistency in the Word of God. Presence of angels in the eyes of men caused great fear. They were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Of course, don't be afraid. (laughs) I love this because every single encounter, the angel has to start the message with, Hey, it's okay. I'm with you. I won't hurt you, little one. Although I'd love to. I'd love to see whether or not the angels really were all that friendly toward everybody that they had to encounter. When Jesus was in the garden, remember, they had come with swords and torches and they were going to take Jesus. And Peter drew out his sword and cut off the ear of one of the servants. And Jesus said, put that sword away and heal that individual And then Jesus went on to say, Don't you know that I can call 12,000 legions of, or 12 legions of angels? That's 12,000 angels. And I'm sure that there were 12,000 angels ready to come at the first word. I'm kind of convinced that the God of heaven had to hold them back from coming out in that day. It only took one angel to kill 180,000 Assyrians in the Old Testament Scriptures. I'd say that's probably more than you and I could stand against. But the angel said, don't be afraid. I bring you good tidings. Evangelize. Good news. I bring you the gospel. That's what this angel is saying. I bring you good tidings of great joy which will be to all people. For there is born to you in this, on this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel. Now, you think one angel is going to scare the life out of you? Take a look at what is now taking place. The whole multitude of angels, that 12,000 angels that I just mentioned, they were there. They were all of a sudden appearing before those shepherds in glorious array. They wanted this message to be known. And they were excited, as all of us should be excited, about this message Great is our God, and greatly to be praised. There is born to you this day in the city of David, that's Bethlehem, that's the place where David lived, a Savior, a Christ, the Christ, the Messiah. Christ is just the Greek word, or the transliteration of the Greek word, Christos, and it means the same thing, sent one, as the Hebrew word, Messiah. He is the Savior, Yehoshua. He is the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach. He is the Lord, Adonai. That word in the Hebrew language is 
always used in almost every case in reference to the God that we serve. He is to be the Savior, the Messiah, the God. And this will be the sign to you. You will find him like a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Not in a king's palace. Not in a place of luxury. But in a place of humility, as we sang today. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, not singing, but saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Which, by the way, probably should have been translated, Peace to men of goodwill. Better translation. To those who receive it, peace. To those who do not, the wrath of God. The story doesn't end there. Yes, the birth of Christ is announced, and yes, that is the night of His birth. But there's another event that is recorded in the Gospel records, again, back in Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. And to preface what is recorded there, this is a story of the wise men coming from the east. Matthew records for us in this earlier passage of this chapter that these magi, wise men, probably in somewhere near present-day Baghdad, they were stargazers. But they had a sense of something miraculous taking place. As they observed the formation of stars, In the sky, they noticed a star that had not shone before up until this particular time. It was a great star. It tells us in Matthew, they saw a star in the east. And some have implied a thought that that meant that the star was to them eastward. But if you realize geographically, that's not possible because they were in the east and they were looking westward toward Jerusalem. So it's really a star in the west. They were in the east. So this eastern star organization that you may have heard of is based upon that particular passage, the star in the east, but they had it backwards. In any case, these magi saw this star, and they realized this is a sign. And it probably was from Daniel's writings that they believed that to be the case, that it stood over the territory which appeared to be the area where Jerusalem is, so they believed it to be a king has been born in Jerusalem. And they all were led, driven, if you will, by the Spirit of God to go and see this great thing. So they took off and took several days to cross the desert into that territory. They went to Jerusalem. They visited the palace of the king in Jerusalem, saying, where is this king that was born? We saw his sign in the east. And we're here to worship him. Herod said, what king? I'm the king. What are you talking about? And he turns to his religious leaders of the day. What do the scriptures say about a king being born? And they answered right away. Oh, well, it says in scripture that, that a king is to be born in Bethlehem. Oh. Well, then, 
why don't you three guys or four guys or ten guys or however many there were of the Magi's were not really told. You know the song, We Three Kings, but it doesn't really apply necessarily. There may have been a multitude of those who had followed with them. But in any case, Herod gave them permission to go to Bethlehem to see if they could find this king and bring back word to him about what they see. Deceptive man that he was, he wanted nothing to do with this supposed king of Israel. But they went, and as they went, it tells us that the star appeared to them as they left Jerusalem in that direction, which is southwestward from Jerusalem. So apparently that star that some believe was a convergence of planets was no longer in the western sky, it was in the southwestern sky, but it stood over the place where Jesus lay. It appeared. They were happy about the fact that it appeared, which means that it hadn't been visible for at least a while until then. But when it appeared, it showed its light down on the very place where Jesus was. And it wasn't the manger. It tells us it was a house. They went to a house where Mary was and the babe, the young, not any longer baby, by the way, but toddler. He was perhaps about a year old, some believe, at this particular time. But the Magi didn't come on the night of his birth, in other words. They came much later. But they did come, and they gave gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And when they departed from that scene, they were told in a dream to go a different way rather than going back to Jerusalem because the dream that whichever one of them must have had, delivered by an angel, perhaps, we're not told, was enough to give them the sense that they needed to stay away from Herod. It tells us in verse 12 of chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. And now comes this part of the story that I wanted to relate to you all. It says in verse 13, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Take note again that the Lord is intervening in the lives of those that he was protecting for this particular reason, that everything that had been promised regarding the time of his arrival in this earth would be indeed fulfilled exactly as it was told in the Word of God. Because Matthew goes on to say, they went down to Egypt and they stayed there until Herod's death. And then another time, Joseph was told by another dream, go now back to Jerusalem because Herod is dead. And then he says that's in fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy. I shall take my child back from Egypt. All of these things were fulfilled exactly as the Word of God declared that they must be fulfilled. And it required the help of angelic beings. I just want to make one last statement before we leave this place today. There's another coming of our Lord and Savior to this earth. 
And he's coming also for his church. At that coming, which we call the rapture of the church, he's not going to set his feet upon the earth, but it tells us that he's going to come in the clouds with the voice of an angel, probably Michael, and a trumpet blast. And those who are in Christ will be raised up together to be with him forever in his presence. Angels will be there in that day too. Angels will be there during the time of the tribulation because we're told in the book of Revelation that there will be angelic beings that will be seen by all men proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. When God has something important to do and say, He does it with His angels' involvement. He did it in the past from Abraham until Jesus' day and He's going to do it again. And keep in mind also that uh, as we live out our lives for Him, whatever things we might have to deal with in our daily living for Christ, know that there are angels standing nearby to help if needed.